0: You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. Well, as David mentioned, we are in week two of our drift series. Last week we looked at the currents that tend to pull us away, the things in this world that are like currents that cause drift in our lives. And and cause this separation in our relationship with God. They seem to wear on our relationship with God, and we're going to continue that today. The title of this message is The Genuine Article. The Genuine Article. I don't know if you're familiar with what a counterfeit is, but a counterfeit is a fake imitation of something. It's made to look like the authentic, whatever the real thing is. I had a couple of friends probably about 25 years ago who would go to New York City. They'd make a number of New York trips to New York City every year. And specifically, they'd go to Chinatown, and they would buy fake Gucci and Rolex watches and Louis Vuitton bags. And then they would come back, and they would sell it to their friends. And their friends knew that they were selling fake stuff. But they didn't really care. And I guess, you know, the reason I figured was, Most of those folks probably could never afford to buy the real thing, and so they said, well, I'll settle for the uh, cheap imitation, right? And that works in a lot of ways. I had one buddy, though, who bought his wife a one-carat cubic zirconium. (coughs) Excuse me. And uh, he was really surprised when his wife uh, was not thrilled with the gift and made him actually return it. And she explained it this way. She said, the people who know us will not believe we could afford that. They know we can't afford that. So they'll know it's fake. And there's something, this is just a public service announcement for all you guys, there's something about a diamond being real that's important to a woman. Okay? And some of you are going, oh, I hope she never has it looked that, you know. (laughs) Hopefully, hopefully not, right? Sometimes, sometimes... It's difficult to tell the authentic from the fake, isn't it? The differences are so gradual that they can be almost imperceptible. One area where this can happen to all of us is in our, our understanding of God. The differences in how we see God and how other people see Him sometimes are very similar, but they're not exactly the same. Many people in the culture that you and I live in are following a counterfeit image of God. And you wonder, how can that happen? How does that happen? It starts with spiritual drift. We start out following God with this white-hot passion for Him, and before we realize it, we've cooled off over time. Drift sets in. Drift will start... When we begin to ignore characteristics of God that we don't like, let's be honest, there are things that God says, His Word says, things about Him that we would change if we had had the opportunity. After we ignore those things long enough, we stop acknowledging that they're actually qualities of God, as if they don't and never ever existed. Our understanding of God drifts into this counterfeit version or understanding. Given enough time, given enough time drifting from the truth, it's easy to settle for a counterfeit version of God. Our theme verse in this entire series is Hebrews 2.1. The writer of Hebrews says, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. We need to pay close attention to this. Who God is? Who is he? Now, left to ourselves, when it comes to learning about God, we're going to make some mistakes. And there are three very common mistakes that people make when they come to this point where they're trying to discern who God is. And I'm going to give it to you very quickly. The first one is we tend to assume that God is just like us. But he's not. In fact, he's not even close. He's much bigger and more powerful and more holy than you and I could ever imagine being. The second mistake we make is we tend to reduce him to measurable and controllable terms. There's a lot of type A's in here that don't like things to be beyond their control. But God is one of those things that you will never be able to control. He's so much more powerful than we are. And the third mistake we make is we tend to overlook significant ways that he has revealed himself to us. Maybe it's because we don't like what he says, but we have a, we have a tendency to overlook these things. So those are the mistakes we make. Now, A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, writes this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's a pretty provocative statement, if you think about it. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Nothing in all your life will impact your relationship with God, your relationship with other people, your view of yourself, your decisions, your purposes. Nothing will impact all of those things like the way you think about God. So here's the first question: What does your vision of God look like? What is your understanding of? Of him. Tozer goes on in, in the knowledge of the holy, and he says, For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous, and I wasn't sure what that word meant, it means ominous, the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. If Tozer is right, then one of the most important things that you and I have to have is an accurate picture of God. And the way that we act as believers gives us a clear picture of our understanding of who we think He is. When I was in the 10th grade, <coughs> excuse me, I went to the eye doctor. I think it was for the first time, and I learned that I needed glasses. Look at that handsome guy. Look at that. Yep. All the guys wanted to be him, and all the girls wanted to be with him. That's who that guy is right there. It was weird, though, how clear my eyesight was when I got glasses. I couldn't believe how clear life really was when I got that first pair of glasses. I'd lived my entire life up to that point, thinking that I had normal vision, but I didn't. Now, every couple of years, I go to the eye doctor to get a checkup, because I want to see clearly every minute of every day. From time to time, you and I need to do the same thing for our spiritual eyes. We need to have our spiritual eyes examined so that we can refocus and gain a clear perspective on who God truly is. Because our version about God might be a little bit off due to drift. The forces and occurrence in this culture can say, no, no, that's not who God is. God's more like this. And again, if we start to drift in our understanding who God is, it can change everything about our lives. Scripture can enlighten our souls, helping us to realize that God is so much bigger and so much more holy and so much more loving and so much wiser than you and I could ever grasp fully. So there are three facts that I think are, I don't want to say vital or essential, but they're really key in us having a clear vision about God. And I want to share those with you this morning if you're taking notes. The fact number one is this. God is not like us. He's not. The Bible tells us we are made in his image and there are similarities between God and us, but God is not like us. In fact, he's not even a bigger or better version of us. At our very best, we we only represent a hint of who he is. And that's when we're at our best. Listen to what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 40. He says, To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry host one by one calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. God is not like us. People get tired. God never gets tired. There are things in this life that you and I don't understand. God has never had a question enter his mind. He is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. And he is all-wise. All the best in us is a faint image of who he is. No, my friends, he's not like us. He is so much better. The Apostle Paul had a bit of a struggle, I imagine, When he wrote this doxology in Romans, the 11th chapter, he he tried to find the appropriate words for this special word of praise toward God. He had just written some of the most profound insights on the free will of man, the sovereignty of God, and the complexity of life. And then he writes this in Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of God? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The answer, he asks these rhetorical questions in this doxology, and the answer is very interesting to me. I mean, listen to these questions. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Anybody? Who has been his counselor? Anybody ever given him advice? Who has ever given God to God so that God had to repay them? They, God owed them. Anybody? And the answer is obvious. No, there's not been one for all of time. Not one person. In fact, the last verse of the doxology points out that God is the source of everything. He's the creator of all that exists, and it's ultimately all for his glory. He's not like you and me. He's not like any created being. He's far better and far greater. Well, there's a second fact that we need to know if we're going to have a clear vision of who God is. And that fact number two is we tend to reduce God into a manageable being. In other words, we want to shrink him down. Faced with his, this awesome, all-knowing, all-powerful, holy God, the exposure that we have with him as we look at how massively great he is, that exposure makes us so uncomfortable that we sometimes try in our minds to shrink him down, to make him man- manageable. We're trying to tame him. But since we can't actually do that with the true Almighty God, we, we've been known as people to invent new deities who will submit to our wishes. Chip Ingram, in his book, The Real God, calls this the shrinking God syndrome. This is when we try to get God to be our servant so we can use him for our purposes specifically. Paul describes the way people respond like this in Romans, the first chapter. He says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God For images made to look like human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. What's Paul saying here? He's saying man started out acknowledging God and who he was and the existence of God. And then they deliberately changed their focus. Their reasoning led them to minimizing God. They turned away from the Creator so that they could pretend to be creators themselves. And here's the reality. This process that Paul explained, it actually happens today. We often reduce God to manageable terms in our lives also. We make him accountable to us rather than humbly realizing that we are completely accountable to him. Our consumer culture sees God as a cosmic vending machine that we visit when we're in need. There's an interesting story that kind of explains some of this, or we see it play out anyway, in Exodus, the 32nd chapter. This is a passage that describes the behavior of some people who had experienced some of the most remarkable demonstrations of God's power in all of history. We're talking about the Israelites. They saw the powerful nation of Egypt, the world's superpower, brought to its knees and devastated and humiliated in order so that they might have their freedom. They walked through walls of water. that They were parted exclusively for their passage. And God gave his people his visible presence in a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. This whole story in Exodus 32 starts with Moses being on the mountain in God's presence getting the Ten Commandments. And this is then what we read. Verse 1, Exodus chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, "Come Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. The Israelites had no idea what was going on. Why was it taking so long up there? Where's Moses? What's happening? Moses has gone AWOL, and the people have now given in to this uncertainty and this fear and this inability to control the situation. And since they couldn't see Moses, they couldn't see God, they decided a manufactured God would do just as well. So given the opportunity to lead, Moses' brother Aaron instead chose to be a crowd pleaser. Could have been a crowd leader, but he chose to be a crowd pleaser. Listen to what we read. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf. Fashioning it with a tool, then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now let that sink in for a moment. They had just reduced God to a golden calf made out of recycled jewelry, and then they proceeded to rewrite history. They gave credit for being the God who led them out of captivity to the previously non-existent golden calf. And although they had seen all the power of God exercised through these massive, incredible miracles, they reduced God into something that they could see and they could manage. And then we read this in verses 5 and 6. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, "'Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord.'" So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Now, this isn't, this isn't your typical joyful worship experience. The word revelry implies base sensuality. It's the casting off of restraints. This is a party that falls in the category of what happens in Vegas, stays in Vegas kind of party. You get the idea. Here's the big question. Do we create our own version of God? I mean, I know we don't make idols, but do we make idols? The truth of that, the truth, if we're going to answer that really honestly, is that we do sometimes. Sometimes. Now, our idols take on different forms. We focus on things like food or body image or wealth or our job or our family or our friends. The list goes on. But this idea that we worship our idols... We worship those things when we invest the best of ourselves in them. Our best thinking, our time, our effort, our finances, our emotions. We're committing ourselves to our involvement with these idols. And we take the God of the Bible, who is all-wise and all-powerful, and we try to make him our personal genie in a bottle, so to speak. We create him in our minds as this God on demand who's there when we need him and when life's not going well, but stays out of the way the rest of the time. We carefully select Bible verses and take them out of context that confirm our conclusion that the real reason, the real purpose, the real goal in our life is for us to be happy. And we've even been known to demand that he get busy and take all these problems out of our lives. Make, make things comfortable for us. And then once we define God in that manner, we proceed to reduce the Christian life to a, just a list of do's, a list of don'ts, a simple kind of formula. If I read the Bible and pray my prayers, and if I give a little money, and if I serve a little bit, and if I maybe go on a mission trip, I mean, really doing God a favor if I do that? When I do that, then life should be great because I've done my part. Now God, my God, the way I've created him, is obligated to give me a great life. That's a great marriage. My kids are going to turn out. I'm never depressed. I'm not even sad. In fact, I keep bad things from happening to me. That's the God I want. And when we do this, this may be the most important thing. We've reduced God from the sovereign Lord of the universe to a servant who's supposed to fill our personal agenda. And I can tell you, newsflash, that is not the God of the Bible. God may bless you with an awesome marriage and great kids, but you live in a fallen world where bad things and painful things happen, unfortunately, almost every day. And God is all that there is. He's the way, He's the truth, and He's the life. And we're His disciples. And we're to endure or enjoy, depending on whether it's difficult or it's good, whatever comes our way. He's the Creator. And we're the creatures that He created. Many people have this salad bar approach to God. They have what we might call a salad bar God. They pick the parts of God that they like from the Bible or other religions, and they reject the parts that they don't like. God's got all of this love. I love that about God. God is love. So my God's got a lot of love. And I love the thing about heaven. My God is the God of heaven. But hell, you know, hell's kind of harsh. My God, I don't like that. And this judgment, all this stuff about judgment, I I don't think God should be like that. I, I think you should always be loving. And we start taking things from the salad bar of, of religions and creating our plate of God. Here's the question. When we do that, who are we worshiping? The truth is, we're worshiping ourselves. Essentially, we assume, I know what I need and what I want in a God. And I'm the one who will determine what that is for me. And we end up reducing God down to a counterfeit that looks a lot like us. We're making ourselves our own God. And here's the fact. We're all prone to doing this at one degree or another. All of us. So we need to be conscious of that fact. Now here's the third fact. That we need to have a clear vision of God. Fact number three. We can only know God through the ways he's revealed himself. We've got to see him as he's revealed himself to us. He's not like us. He's not going to be submitting to our reductions or our attempts to tame him or minimize or shrink him. It's only when we recognize and encounter God as he is that we will progress toward becoming all that he created us to be. It's easy to drift in our understanding of God and end up living with this reduced image of who he is. We need to focus very, very clearly on how God reveals himself to us, and then we need to pay attention to what we learn. There's three ways that God reveals himself to us very quickly. The first one is through nature. Through nature. Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2 The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Everyone on earth who has ever seen the sky or looked at the stars at night or seen a sunrise or a sunset has seen the creativity of God. The total scope of the stars in the night sky alone are just massive. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Jeremiah said this, As countless as the stars of the sky. How many stars are there? Well, in 2003, science got together and they they attempted to count the number of stars in the heavens. And they came up with this number. Seventy sextillion That is 70 with 21 zeros. That is a huge number. As though you didn't already know that. God displays the truth about himself through nature. The heavens declare the glory of God. We see these things. A sunset, a sunrise. We see the birth of a baby. And they shout, God is amazing. We see his glory in those moments. I would tell you, if, if you're not convinced, on a clear night, just go out, set your phone or your watch you know, timer to 30 minutes, and just sit and take in the heavens. Look at the stars in the sky. Don't, don't try to solve anything. Just sit there and look and see the unfiltered glory of the God in heaven. There's a second way that God, not only through nature, communicates to us, reveals himself to us. But the second way that he does is through his word. Observing nature will give you a true but only a partial picture of who God is. If you want a clearer picture, the second place that he reveals himself is through his written word. God is the original communicator, and he created us to be receptors of his communication. In the Old Testament, we read of all these times that God spoke to people in various times in various ways. It is through the Bible that we learn about these character qualities of God, his goodness, his sovereignty, his holiness, his wisdom, his justice, his faithfulness, and maybe best of all, his love for us. God reveals himself through his word. But the greatest way that God has revealed himself is through his son, Jesus. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says at the very beginning of that letter. In the past... God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The best way in which God reveals himself is through his son Jesus. If we don't meet Jesus in and through the scriptures, we have missed the central reason God gave us the Bible. We need to come to the Bible with an expectation of having an encounter with God, just as the disciples encountered him after the resurrection. Seeing Jesus risen from the dead changed these terrified disciples into a group of courageous men who were willing to die in order to tell the world about Jesus. And the difference was they saw Jesus raised from the dead. If you want to see God, As he longs for you to see him, we must look closely at Jesus. I want to draw all this to a close here. When I started this whole series, I copied Isaiah 29, a big chunk of that passage. And uh, I copied it off and I put it in a folder because of this one verse. Really, there's a lot in that passage, but this one verse kind of summarizes everything that we talked about today. And so I knew I wanted it to be, but I couldn't figure out where to wedge it in, and then I realized just a couple days ago, this is where it goes, right here, the conclusion of this message. Isaiah 29, verse 16. Look what he says. You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what his form say to the one who formed it? You did not make me. Can the pot say to the potter, You know nothing? God makes it crystal clear here in Isaiah 29, 16 that he's the one who's in control. He's the potter. And every time we start messing around with who he is and all that, it's like the clay saying to God, You did it wrong. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. This is the way I want it. There's no way the clay ever speaks. He is at the mercy of the potter's hands. And that is you and I. Now, is it wise to question the almighty, all-knowing, all-wise God? Let me answer it this way. You can question him. He's got broad shoulders. He can take whatever you and I throw at him. You see, he's given you the freedom to do that. Is it wise? Probably not. Because you're the clay and he's the potter. If you've drifted from the, what the Bible says who God is, if you, if you look at Scripture and you find that you're clear over here and, and the Bible describes God as being like this and you're clear over here, here's the reality. Here's the reality. God is a God of second chances. And whatever caused the drift, whatever the currents were that pushed you that way, you can do what the Bible says and simply repent. That's one of those theological words that simply means to turn around and, and start rowing back toward Him. You can repent today and you can start again with God. I want to invite you to come back to the true God, the genuine article, the real deal. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the truth that you don't give up on us, that you are a God of second chances. Your word says your mercies are new every morning, and we thank you for that. Lord, will you give us a clear vision and understanding of who you are? Lord, we don't want a counterfeit understanding that we create because we know that we just end up doing things that are self-serving God we want to know you like the disciples did Lord if we've drifted will you restore us today will you help us as we turn this life around and start pursuing you again give us that white hot passion we had when we first came to know you Lord, I pray for anyone that's drifted from you in their understanding of you today that they would take that step to turn back. God, we thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be right down here. We're going to, like we do every Sunday about this time, we're to worship the Lord. And if you want to talk to somebody, you want somebody to pray with you, you're not sure where this thing is that we've been talking about today. And Love to, love to do that. Maybe you've never, you know, established any kind of connection or relationship with God. I mean, you've got all these crazy thoughts of things you've seen on TV or heard people talk about, but you'd love to know kind of, what does the Bible say? I'd love to tell you about that, tell you what Jesus means to me and the difference He can make in your life. Let's stand together. Let's worship Him. Come over here and meet me if you have a desire.